Welcome to Minority Report. I'm your host, Salomon Flamenco, and I hope everyone had a great holiday season. I'm incredibly excited to bring you our first episode of the new year featuring Nikash Harnpanhali, an undergraduate student at Georgetown School of Foreign Service and the current president of the South Asian Society. I discovered Nikash while reading The Hoya, which, for those who don't know, it's Georgetown student-run newspaper. And I was immediately struck by his impact on campus. Along with other student organizers and professors, Nikash played a crucial role in launching uh, the South Asian Certificate Program at Georgetown, which is just a huge deal. The certificate brings a much needed nuance and depth to Georgetown's academic offerings, highlighting the unique and vital cultural heritage of the Indian subcontinent. These regions are often overlooked in mainstream American discourse, but the South Asian Certificate helps to shed light on their rich and complex histories, languages, and traditions. It's a real game changer for Georgetown, and I was so impressed by Nikash's work that I reached out to him truly out of the blue, just cold emailed. I'm really grateful he got back to me, and I can't wait for you to hear our conversation about the creation of the South Asian Certificate Program and the challenges and opportunities it presents. It's going to be a great talk, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Real quick, I guess, just to start out, first question, who are you, what are you, and what do you do? Oh, I think those are three really big questions to start on, damn. My name is Nikosh Sharpanhali. I am currently a junior in the undergraduate School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. I am studying South Asian studies with a minor in, once again, Persian studies and religion, ethics, and world affairs. As for who am I, I was born in Dallas, Texas, to Savita and Shankar Harpanhali, immigrants from Karnataka in South India. And I am a very, very proud queer South Asian American. I belong to a unique ethno-religious tradition called Lingayatha Dharma, which is a group that was started in the 11th century to fight against understandings of caste hierarchy, gender hierarchy, and class hierarchy. My faith, my gender, my sexuality, my ethnicity, my religion, and my language are all composite parts of who I am and what I want to be. And that is to say that like, I am not done defining who I am. I will always be undefinable. So it's a really lovely question to start off with, but I don't really know who I am. You kind can... of, no, you kind of skipped to the end there. Sorry to interrupt, but that's kind of something that I've been discovering as it's gone on. Is, you know, <laughs> identity is very much in flux. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's fluid, it's dynamic. I mean, mm. who we are and what we decide to belong to is anyway, it's not, it's, you know, it's no one else's decision. It should always be our own. So I guess who I am, what I do. Right. Mm -hmm. Besides studying South Asia, I am also very active in Georgetown's like undergraduate social life. I am the current president of our South Asian Society. Georgetown University South Asian Society is one of the oldest and largest cultural organizations. I am also an activist. I do a lot of interreligious work. I work for Interfaith America's Building Interfaith Leadership Initiative, where I kind of work between religious groups and I, I learn how to be an interreligious activist and interreligious community builder. I work for Georgetown University's Campus Ministry. So I actually staff every single Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, Muslim, Sikh, I'm missing one. And other, and other, and other religious traditions. So I am, um, I also work there. I am an avid reader. I love books about South Asia. I love books about queerness and I love learning languages. I currently am trying to learn 12. 
Wow, you are yeah. a busy person. Too busy for my own good. Did I get your pronouns already? I use, oh yeah, I forgot. I also belong to something called Tertia Prakriti, which is a conception within dharmic traditions of, you know, gender fluidity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am, you know, I, I'm very masculine presenting, so I really accept any gender you'd like to say, but it's my own personal belief that I belong to a tradition that circumvents heteronormative understandings of gender mm-hmm. uh, and it, I belong to a religious tradition that doesn't believe in that is necessary so I use any pronoun so call me anything very fantastic I guess going from there wow you are really busy I do too much for my yeah. own good genuinely no but it's a lot of good work I'm wondering off the top growing up in Texas mm-hmm. you know there are pockets of liberalism and leftism in Texas but for the most part it's a pretty conservative spot and knowing that about you before you came in I wasn't sure how I you, got there yeah. yeah who you were and how you got to where you are now so I'd be very curious to hear about that journey oh if yeah you're willing to talk about um, it begins like with you and I attended a PW high PWI PW High, that's funny. That was a Freudian <laughs> slip. I went to the Episcopal School of Dallas, and you know, I was really lucky to be in a private Christian school. I was surrounded by you know some of the best resources available to me. I was surrounded by amazing you know teachers and a really a really interesting community. I it was a school where you had to go to church, kind of like every single day. Episcopalians are really chill. Yeah, every day I'd spend like forty minutes in a chapel. I went there wow. from fourth grade all the way until senior year, mm-hmm. and so that was actually a big part of who I am. I came, I grew up in a really, really diverse South Asian community where we had multiple different ethnic groups. We had Gujaratis, Kannadigas, Telugus, Tamilians, everyone. Mm-hmm. And then I would leave that community and go to school during the day a very very 90 percent white school mm-hmm. it was really small like each grade was around 100 people but combined with you know engaging with a tradition that's very different from my own and that on a daily price you know basis i actually towards like high school got really involved in like diversity equity and inclusion work at my high school i was lucky enough actually to join my the my my, my school's church which is like part of the di- episcopal diocese i was lucky enough to join their vestry program so I actually would work in their church and I would sometimes be able to give like, you know, readings and talk about, you know, a Bible despite being gay and Hindu. Mm-hmm. Don't know why people believe me because I feel like it's... <laughs> 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 Episcopalians, they're kind of great, you know? Yeah, interesting. I'm wondering how did your Hindu background affect this interreligious dialogues that you've been working with since you were in high school so basically i think like kind of entering that i was always like i was always attracted to study religion Mm -hmm. Uh, funny enough i was a really shit math student like i think one of the worst in my in my year (laughs) my poor teacher is since middle school can attest but i was always really really good at religion like my grades in religion were above 100 Mm -hmm. Um, in fourth grade we had to take a religion class and i just was magnetized by the power of storytelling that builds community, the lessons that we can draw from and how applicable they are. That's kind of where I've kind of situated myself with the religion. I think faith is not something that is limited and shouldn't be something that is an exclusive force. I think it has so much power and dynamicity that it can be a force of bridge building. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I kind of discovered. So my, I'm not actually a Hindu. I, I would say that like the term Hindu is at times a colonial term and has a very complicated history in the past 200 years. Apologies. No, no, no. It's, it's part of the process, I think, as we decolonize and as we find what our identities really mean and we redefine ourselves, 
it gives us agency to therefore, you know, remove ourselves from this tyranny of taxonomies and work to, you know, kind of juxtapose. And that's exactly what happened to me in like high school, middle school. I was juxtaposing a lot of really unique traditions of openness, of inclusion with, you know, a single holy text, Mm -hmm. a very specific reading on how the world looks and how the world should operate. Two very different ways of living and existing and thinking of the divine. But what I found that was in common was a common understanding of community that faith in community is what brings out the best in humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's kind of why I was doing that stuff with vestry. I, I would go to these religion classes and then start talking about the Bible as a gay Hindu while my very, very white and conservative peers would look on. It was, I think, at first horrifying, must have been, but then the confusion melted away into something of, I think, tacit acceptance. And I think it was in there, especially you know being very very proud person on the left it was very blue in a very red space mm-hmm. uh, and already being a queer minority i was always racialized first foremost when anyone looked at me in my school it was brown then gay so for me working within those racialized understandings was hard i would always be like known as like that pagan but there was power in stepping on like a pulpit and telling those people the same people who would call me heathen, pagan, faggot, the whole line of words, Mm -hmm. that their God is a God of love. And that, you know, the redeeming, the Messiah, was someone who loved no matter what. And that magnetic, I think the magnetism and contradiction is what brought me into like working in interreligious spaces. And it wasn't because of a clash of Hindu or Christian identity, but rather, you know, out of that violence came a sense of, of, of similarity that has motivated me to, you know, be the person I am today. Mm-hmm. Wow! Thank you so much. That was sorry. That was a lot. I think we really. No, said, Who was... am I? And then I went right into it. <laughs> no, I, I love it though, because you really, you know, we talked a little bit before we started recording, but this is a conversation that is important to have. And oh, yeah. I feel like you know to break those little, not bubbles, but blocks that people are put into. And, you know, that's not how people are. People are dynamic and they grow. Yeah, and they we're from communities that, like, I think I, you know, growing up in Texas, you learn a lot about Latin America. We mm-hmm. are Latin America. Esta tierra era Mexico. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like, we can't forget where we are and who we are. History is, is tied to the present. And I think learning from Latin America, I learned that, you know, there's whole people, people groups that didn't exist 500 years ago. Yeah. Religious traditions, convictions, beliefs that take the whole heart that about half a thousand years ago did not exist just to reorient ourselves i'm thinking about community and what you talked mm-hmm. about community and its importance and i'd like to know how your south asian community in dallas texas helped you grow as well focusing away from the white people so uh, that's actually a really complicated question i i i think now in hindsight i saw that a lot of my community was was there for me that's they'd supported me it became you know like a cornerstone of who i am but at that same time you know like i think being a queer south asian american is a really weird experience it's really queer <laughs> that was a really shit pun but it is definitively i just got it <laughs> it's 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 it is strange because you know I, colonization exists there too like queerness was something that's part and parcel of a lot of dharmic traditions but you'll find the same people who worship a, a divine you know divine feminine and divine masculine in a, a divine androgynous form you know having intensely homophobic beliefs and so my community 
you know, at times there's, you know, bouts of toxic masculinity. I'm the only son in my family. And so there's expectations there put on by family friends, by my own family, hell, even implicitly by my parents. And so being queer was, I think, a distancing factor from my own community as I got older and as I started to question, like, who am I? What are my roots? Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do I survive in Texas? Like, what do I do? But queerness... I felt like I had to choose between being queer and South Asian, and my community did not make that. That made that decision. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't made. It made making that decision a lot more difficult. And mm-hmm. the fact that that decision had to be made at all is testament of, kind of like at times how that community, didn't vocalize how open they are and how how supportive they could have been. But genuinely, that community was incredibly diverse both even politically, the way that people thought, mm-hmm. but more importantly, like the way you know people talked. Like the, my family friends were from all different parts of India. There's a lot of them who were born in the States, who parents from Africa and parts of the Indian diaspora and Fiji and the Caribbean. And so I grew up in a, I think in the most truest sense of the word, a South Asian community. I will say that community did not have a lot of Muslim South Asians. It was a, a very Dharmic space, a very Hindu space, and there was a lot of Gujaratis. And so I was, I was in growing up, I, I kind of had a very specific understanding of what South Asia is, and it was a foundation, but that also that very specific understanding of what South Asia was and is, was not, I couldn't build on that until I got to you know, university, until mm-hmm. I was able to leave that community. No, that makes a lot of sense. You're at Georgetown now, which is in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. if you didn't know. And Center of Empire. Yes, I'm wondering, you're a junior now. Afterwards, are you considering going back to Texas? Are you going to stay in D.C.? Or what are you thinking in terms of I that think, trajectory? unfortunately, I am a Texpat. I am. <laughs> I, <laughs> I really like that one. I, I have a lot of puns. I unfortunately don't know if I'll stay in the States. I think I should work in South Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'd like to go to grad school in the U.K., Unfortunately, the other center of empire. No, no, no. no, no. Unfortunately, the best places to study South Asia are where the UK. Yeah, because they. I mean, yeah, for 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 definitely. I was going to say for better or worse, but I think it is definitely for worse. For worse, yeah, I would say. Yeah, yeah. But I think I'm hoping to go jump across the pond. Okay, interesting. I want to talk about. I don't want to dwell too much on this, but I am curious because you brought it up on some of the tensions that exist currently in the South Asian community, especially when it comes to, you know, Muslim South Asians. And mm-hmm. also, I don't know a lot about this, so I wish you could... You know, uh, that's tell, my whole major. Tell me what you think of it, but I keep hearing about this tension between North and South mm. Indians. So there's that, and then there's also religious tension, and there's also, beyond the religious tension, there's political tension. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of dimensions, and that's what makes South Asia... Like, that's why I'm obsessed. Mm-hmm. Everyone and everyone, they inhabit so many identities at once. It's so different than where I, how I've grown up here in the States. I, I think I've always been given a flat label. But as soon as you step foot in South Asia, you have to learn how to juggle thousands of them. All these labels have to be in concert with each other. So North and South Indians. I am South Indian, mm-hmm. but I grew up with a lot of North Indians. At times, North Indians, specifically Hindi-speaking North Indians, have access to a lot of cultural institutions that not everyone is just given. A lot of Bollywood movies are in Hindi. It's only now that we're seeing the rise of Telugu language film to like international spotlights. And so North and South India, it's a lot of linguistic differences and cultural differences. And in the States, I think overwhelmingly, there's a lot of older South Asian populations, the populations that contributed to making what, like, you know, what, the, what when Americans think of India and what they think of Indians, 
they often think about a lot of like North Indians at, in the in the states because they were the first to come here. Mm-hmm. It's only now that like there's now huge populations of Telugu speaking communities, Tamil speaking communities, Kannada speaking communities. So there's a little bit of a minute cultural difference for religion. That's where it gets complicated. I'm my whole major is focused on Hindu Muslim dialogue. Given South Asia's intensely complicated history of religious, you know, conflict, I think that same history also has examples of religious unity and solidarity. The British, when they studied South Asia, decided to periodize it in South Asia's history into a Hindu Muslim, Hindu ancient, a Muslim medieval, and a Christian modern. Mm. I know, and so unfortunately, they kind of left their language, you know, their ways of thinking, their ways of seeing the world, and they call it epistemic colonialism in a lot of my classes, and unfortunately, no one's really problematized it. And those that do problematize it, they at times Hindu nationalists or, you know, Islamists, they often use the same vocabulary of the master to attempt to dismantle the master's house, and it doesn't work. And so Hindu-Muslim relations, particularly in the Indian community, are difficult because many of the diaspora communities do not trust each other because of political narratives that were put in generations before they were born. So there's also an impulse in studying a history of peace, of solidarity, an impulse to be a bridge builder rather than a bridge burner, you know? Mm-hmm. So those divides are cross-cutting and they, they're they really nuanced, but at the end of the day, they're divides that can be overcome. My best friend in high school was actually Pakistani. In middle school, excuse me, middle school and elementary school, it was Pakistani. I went to my first ever Eve because we were both called brown by my white classmates. Yeah. We both oddly found ourselves, you know, speaking the same languages, watching the same movies, dancing to the same songs, and definitely competing whatever the spicier food. It's mine, my people. You should always try masala, Mysore uh, masala dosa. It will burn off the first part of your tongue. No, not a single Nihari can even attempt that. Touch it. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Okay. But right. the second layer of tongue is going to have all the flavor. Oh, right? yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. But <laughs> I found that, like, in these experiences growing up in a really, really white space, that mm-hmm. solidarity has always been there. It just needs actual motivation to find it. Yeah. Well, you are so smart. I have 10 questions for every answer. <laughs> but just to s- simplify some things, I'd like to see the timeline of your. Was it your parents or your grandparents who came to the U.S.? My parents. Okay. I'd like to hear a little bit about their story, if you will. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, my my father was born in this very, very big town called Ranebenor in northern Karnataka. His family came there from Delhi around 300 years ago. So they've been there for a hot sec. My mother's family is from the same region, but in the late 1700s, like around the time of America's independence, famine killed four million people in the Deccan that was engineered by British policies, a nascent British policies. It was called the Forty Skulls Famine. And my family, my mother's family, moved south to Mysore, where it was a princely state, so they escaped colonization, but were puppeted by the British, and so didn't escape all the levels of colonization. My mom's family, then my, my grandparents, moved back to the north and where my mom, my grandmother met my grandfather, who was the, he was the Dean of Agricultural Studies at the University of Darwad. So my mom actually grew up at a university, kind of like a university town, mm-hmm. if you will. It's this really beautiful place called Darwad, tucked into the Ghats, which are these beautiful sloping hills into the Deccan Plateau. It's where it's like almost green and then it starts to sink into the red arid fertile infertile soil of the Deccan Plateau. So that's where they grew up. Mm-hmm. My mom came to the States, I think in 96, 
91, 92, 93, one, sometime in the 90s. <laughs> I, should, I should know this. But she is a dentist and she studied dentistry. Basically, they wouldn't take her degree, so she decided to find a degree here in the States. Mm-hmm. And so she was lucky enough to be accepted to University of Pennsylvania, which was UPenn's, uh, I think, dental school was the best at the time. And so she was able to go there. My dad came with, and he studied. He's now a software consultant, a software engineer. So he's been kind of working around in those types of sectors for the longest time. It's typical for a lot of Indian Americans to have, mm-hmm. you know, someone doing technology and then someone doing medicine. It all kind of goes under that really fun STEM umbrella, but that's kind of where they came from. And they became citizens in 2001, a couple months after I was born. Okay. But they had green cards and were kind of kicking around the States for a while. And then I was born in Dallas. My mom moved, they moved from Philadelphia to Dallas, I think, 97, maybe? Mm-hmm. Like later, much later. Okay. I just I should I should probably know the timeline of where they were going. <laughs> I'm, interested, I'm interested that you don't. You they don't know, like talking so, about it. Yeah. Do you think? Do you have any hypothesis as to why? Yeah, my mom calls it the rat race. I think they were both really really stressed. They didn't know what to do, and it was obviously a very foreign country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can imagine my parents left everything they knew behind. I had some family here, but they were scattered all around the world, and they were mostly in Texas actually, and so was one of the reasons why my mom, I think, went from Philadelphia and my dad, my mom and my dad went from Philadelphia to Dallas. Is mm-hmm. They were looking for a support system. They were looking, craving, needing community in a place that they couldn't find one. Um, so I think a lot of the pains that they went through those early years, they'll allude to once in a while, but, you know, a racist attack here, or a, you know, someone in a feeling of isolation here or there, and a lesson of how to in- endeavor. It's always a lesson with my dad. He'll always be like, this is how you persevere. Yeah. Um, it's now that I'm, I'm, I'm living away from home that I realize I should have listened. <laughs> That's, it's always like that. It's always it? like that. It's always like that. Yeah. I'm wondering the rat race and your own journey. I'm wondering what pressures you felt growing up mm-hmm. in that shadow. So my parents actually, funny enough, never really pressured me to do anything. They were just like, do your best in whatever you're passionate about. So I was actually obsessed with ancient Egypt growing up. Mm-hmm. So my mom and my dad would buy me these books about ancient Egypt, and I actually taught myself hieroglyphs. I was obsessed with ancient cultures, the Greeks, the Romans, mostly the Egyptians, then the Sumerians, then the Maya, the Olmec, Nahuatl-speaking groups, then finally India. I it was a long journey to get there, but when I was, I think, in middle school, when I went to India, I think when I was 11, it was, I think, the first time I went when I'm, like, conscious, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. I, I went when I'm, like, three, but who the fuck remembers that? But, like... It was only then that I kind of was looking there. And my parents have always supported everything. I think they, they've they never pressured me into doing a specific career. And I think that's, I, I, that's, I think, one of the ways that I've ended up here is that I, I've chosen my own path. And funny enough, they, you know, many times they really admonish South Asia. My mom didn't like how entrenched patriarchy is in everything. As a woman, she had to fight for her place and had to work 10 times harder as any other man in growing up in India. And that was one of the, I think, a block for her. So when I started kind of like, you know, having this passion and starting in middle school for researching our history, our culture, where we're from, especially that I had like this little history book and I was traveling through India, I was reading about the places I was in, in that little book. It was really cool. But it was only then that I realized my parents were really there for me. They were there to passionately support anything I was interested in. So when I wanted to learn a bunch of languages, I actually started with my dad wanting to know if I could ask for a discount at this wine shop 
down the street in, in Plano. And he wanted me, I actually, my first phrase I ever learned in Italian was not buongiorno, which was hello, was like, do you have a discount? <laughs> <laughs> and so my parents started to realize that sometimes when my little quirky interests actually paid off, I don't know about the hieroglyphics, but definitely the languages. So they actually helped me, you know, find a tutor and, and start enrolling in programs and learn as many languages as they could. They didn't really pressure me to be, you know, you know, this, this academic weapon. They didn't pressure me to do medicine or STEM or to do something that made sense to them. Mm-hmm. I think that whole rat race that they were in made them realize that I think if you live and you be your most authentic self, it's not really a rat race. It is a way of living. It is about centering your passion at the nexus of a professional career and then, you know, living. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've never really put a pressure on me to, to be a certain type or a certain way. Even when I came out to them, you know, I came out to my mom. I still have to come out to my dad, but I, my mom and I make enough jokes where he should know at this point. Yeah. They never really put any pressure on me besides marry a rich man, which, you know what? You know what? Is <laughs> valid. Is so valid. You know, my mom once said, you know, please be with anyone you want, just not a Pakistani. And I think that's part of the reason why I now study the Indo-Pakistani conflict. And my first boyfriend was actually from Lahore, Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And so... My parents really never put real stringent expectations or pressure on me. They just wanted me to be happy, and it shows. And the way I am, the way I love, the way I study. Yeah, I, it definitely shows. I think it's really. It's. it's I think it's. It's definitely. That's why I. I, I feel so passionate about talking about di- my diaspora experiences because the misconceptions out there mm-hmm. are really harmful. The model minority myth is is something that is predicated on class, you know, on a lot of classism. It's predicated on the fact that a lot of Indian immigrants bought their way here. They are the best of the best. They are the people coming here with, you know, already, you know, generational wealth. Mm-hmm. My parents were able to get here because of that same generational wealth. And so those dynamics do have a place in discussing, like, what do these communities look like in America now? Especially as we try to build solidarity against white supremacy, we have to be cognizant of where our parents come from. Mm-hmm. I'd like to know more about that from your perspective. How have you seen solidarity building and what have you seen hindering those moments or those movements overall? Solidarity between who? I would say between, you know, black indigenous POCs in America. I think once you get into those weeds, it gets very complicated by histories of colonialism mm-hmm. and specific facets of racism. I'd like to know like, just what you make of it, mm-hmm. what inroads have been made, but what still needs work. Yeah, and as a, as a community leader on Georgetown's campus, like, that is something that is not just an expectation, but it is, is something we have to do to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think being in a university is, is definitely different than just you know sitting at home in Dallas and, and existing in a, in, a, in a silo. I think that's one of the magical things about Georgetown is that you do get to interact with people from mm-hmm. many different backgrounds, from many different lived experiences. It was only until really coming here that I felt the need for solidarity. Solidarity is a meaning, is, is a, its capacity to survive. It was only when I got here that I realized, like, I am on indigenous land. When we had to consecrate our first dharmalia, which is the Dharmic Meditation Center, it is the first ever multi-dharmic, you know, it's the first ever inter-dharmic space, sacred space at Georgetown. It's the first ever space of its kind at a Catholic institution in world history. And who would have thought it would be at a Jesuit university? I certainly didn't. 
And so when we were, you know, having discussions about like how do we, you know, enter, how do we, you know, engage with the divine in that aspect? How do we invoke it to make that space sacred? We thought about the land. In our tradition, my my even in my tradition, we worship the rivers that sustain our communities, the sky that brings us rain and the trees that give us shade. And so on this land, thousands of miles from where my people are from, we have to ask ourselves those same questions. So when we're, when I was talking to Dr. Sharon, he's, one, he's my spiritual mentor and the head of Dharmic life here at Georgetown, he wanted to you know make sure that we paid homage to West African spiritual traditions of the enslaved individuals that built this campus. Mm-hmm. We wanted to ask the you know the traditions of the Nakash Tank and Piscataway people for this land and for this space. As South Asians who come from a colonial you know from that same colonial history and not the same colonial history but a colonial history that is in dialogue with a global you know the global events of white supremacy we have to be cognizant of how our histories or our religions interact with the lands and the, the physical spaces we're in positionality is what often comes to my mind I, I i don't think that solidarity just exists out of nowhere it has to be built and so i think i kind of realize like i'm on this land that has this history of intense violence against people of color my people have just got here. In fact, the first iterations of South Asians that came to this hemisphere were indentured servants coming to the Caribbean. It was them who built communities with black and indigenous communities in Guyana, Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica. It was those communities that I think we see these first instances of interaction. I talk a lot about history because I think for all the pain that's there, we also find examples of human triumph and ingenuity. Solidarity doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's, it, it is a foundation, and we have it. But the fact we don't know, the fact that this is not commonplace discourse, hinders our capacity to be there for each other. Mm-hmm. There's an intense amount of anti-blackness in the South Asian community that comes both from a reaction to you know, colorism, but also intense ignorance and a lack of you know, meaningful motivation to educate ourselves about the racialized history of, of, of the United States. To be frank, it, it takes energy to search that out. That's not what kids are taught in school. That's not what we're educated about, especially with a lot of you know, South Asian immigrants operating very specific, often white spaces. Mm-hmm. So building solidarity not just has to be an intentional project, but a necessary one. Our histories are not, they cannot be divorced from our present. If we do not build solidarity, we cannot be effective agents of decolonizing. Decolonization has to occur in concert with another. We can't just, you know, do it ourselves. Because, to be frank, all this pain, this history of suffering, doesn't just affect one people. It affects us in all complicated ways. The systems that harm us, racism, homophobia, anti-blackness, casteism, Islamophobia, they are all informed by nuanced structures that cross between each other. We operate and we have many different identities. So it makes no sense for us to shy away from solidarity or shy away from the dialogue that we need to have as a community. We are on indigenous land. We, I go to a university built by black enslaved individuals. I cannot ignore that history. Mm-hmm. The biggest hint challenge that has been to you know, meaningful dialogue has come from my own community. It has come from a lack of education, a lack of you know, historical consciousness. We have this amnesia. And it is because, you know, we don't have access to our own history. And so one of my, I think, one of the things that I think is particularly powerful is that 
if we if we talk to each other about this, if we we try to educate each other, and that's one of the things I want to do as a campus leader is talk about this history. It is not the first time that an El Salvadorian and a you know South Indian have sat in the same room. It will not be the last. And so if we draw from this history of, of, of intense solidarity of bridge building, we create a foundation for something bigger, better, more robust. Thank you for that. I feel as if, not to go on a tangent, but part of what this podcast is about is that, is the bridge building that it has to take place between everyone. And part of my concern has been, I, I don't know if people are going to listen beyond their own subsect. I legitimately do not, you know. This has been a concern of mine that's kind of been there. I know some will, but it's, you know, it's a tragic thing to think about. Yeah, that's, be- a, that's a valid anxiety, and I, I think the only way to meaningful adjust that is to make them realize that they aren't just a subsect. Their ancestors interacted with my ancestors as much as, you know, a white man's ancestors did. Mm-hmm. It is, we, we tend to think that we are not part of a global history. We are. We are defined by it. All parts of the globe are now are now so intensely interconnected, but that is not the first time. Did you know that it was the Greeks who actually brought iconographic forms to Hinduism? I think I did know this. Oh wow, yeah, please say it more about this. It was Alexander thing. the Great's, you know, descendants in, in India who converted to Buddhism that first began depicting Lord Buddha in a statue form. Before then it was never done. It was, there are histories of intense interaction that change the way we grow. In Guyana, for example, the divine feminine is revered by both members of, you know, various, I think, Yoruba-specific traditions, descendants of the Yoruba community in Guyana, that also worship aspects of Kalima, the divine feminine for many, you know, it's a, I think it's a closed practice, but the divine feminine for many, many, many South Asians. And it's that interaction, that history, that if we're able to bring to light, that it, it flies in the face of everything that white supremacy teaches us about us being cloistered and siloed away into unique developments, with, which is in, untrue. Mm-hmm. Being a part of diaspora also means that we're not the first diaspora. The word is Greek, and often or not, it was used to describe the expulsion of Jews from Jerusalem, mm-hmm. you know, by the Romans. You know, it, it, it's interesting to think that, like, you know, five percent. I was just watching this video earlier today that five percent of of you know of, of Latin Americans have you know, can claim heritage from Sephardic Jews, yeah. who came to Spain after the expulsion in seventy A.D. Our histories are global, are transatlantic. They have always been. But I think the biggest way of like circumventing that 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 anxiety is by showing that we aren't just subsects. We're not we're not sex at all. We are part of a global human community that has been engaging with each other for thousands of years in one way or the other. I want to snap just because... <laughs> no, I feel like this is very true where people talk about, you know, especially... We can talk about this more, but, you know, fascist, this anti-globalist, mm. blah, blah, you know, words and words, but the world has always been global no like it's these like, people you know. they're, they're the fascist, you know they use a word of where you know italian you know the italians who mm-hmm. you know first started the, the word fascism they draw upon this intense roman heritage what were those roman senators wearing indian silk i was gonna say sandals yeah I'm also sorry. probably made in india yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you see like we we can't let ourselves forget that like you know 
we're 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 defined by history. We're mm-hmm. defined by global history. What language are we speaking now? Funny enough, we're speaking the language, the same language as my ancestors colonized us. Mm-hmm. This is our medium of engagement. Well, I'm just thinking about it now in terms of Latin America, but we'll talk about that soon enough. I'm wondering, can you talk about if you feel comfortable your sexual identity in relation to your religious identity a little more? Oh yeah, so this is actually, I, I think, why why I am part of a spiritual tradition, like why I am really religious, is because my queerness is supported. It is part and parcel of how I see the divine. Growing up in Texas, I think, one, my first crush was a white Catholic man, mm-hmm. funny enough. I'm at Georgetown now. <laughs> what can I say? Yeah. <laughs> there is so many Irish twinks here. It's honestly, honestly offensive. I was just thinking, I was like, damn, there really has been a full circle made. Shit. Whether I like it or not. But what I like to say is like, you know, like I, you can is like my, my queerness, at least when the school I, I went to, the, where I, the spaces I grew up in, queerness was always divorced from religion. It was seen as something that is antithetical to religion. Mm-hmm. And then growing up in, you know, conservative Texas, even in the suburbs, you know, you'll find like Kathy and Nancy down the street, you know, tossing around slurs. Like it's like, you know, an everyday object, an everyday thing to do. So recognizing that these people also had a deep conviction for faith, whether that is, you know, a, you know, a part and parcel of how they grew up or their communities. What I realized is that if I'm able to derive that same sense of meaning, that same sense of comfort, I wouldn't be able not just to, you know, remove that hyphen from being South Asian hyphen queer. I would be able to be all composites of myself authentically, wholly. Um, and so what my what I started to do is I, I started to really research. My grandmother passed away in 2019. I remember going to India, I think the first time in my recent memory, and it was a really tough trip because there was a lot of family issues. And my grandma was, she actually moved to San Antonio a couple years after I was born. And so she would always come back up and she was a regular part of my, my, my childhood and growing up. She lived with me during high school. And so her passing away was really big and she was incredibly religious. We have something called Ishtalinga Puja. It's a, our own form of meditative, contemplative practice that I often would just say that's Hinduism. I come to find out that in this trip in 2019, it's not. You're from a very unique set of traditions. And so I decided you know, to be initiated. Beforehand, I actually, growing up, I refused to learn my, my mother and my father's home language, Kannada. I refused to learn, which is something I, I do regret. And that's part of the reason why I speak so many other languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I also refused to be initiated into my tradition because I didn't understand it. Growing up in Texas, you know, it's, there is a very specific understanding of how Christianity plays a role in, in communal life. And my religion did not fit that role, so I, I shunned it. It was only until, you know, confronted by death, the real questions, you know, what happens after you die? Where is my grandmother going to go? I've never seen my mom in grief. What support is there that I can give her? I think something happens when you see your own parent like weep. Yeah. I don't like there's there's something soul breaking about that. And it was that that pushed me to realize that my grandmother's faith, her deep conviction is her community. This is how she survived here in the states. My mama thought it was like a bunch of patriarchal bullshit, which is valid. Mm-hmm. It was when I decided to be initiated that I started to learn the realities of what, you know, the the teachings are. 
There's something called the Vachanas. Instead of having, we don't really pay a lot of incredible, I mean, some communities do within my own larger community, but we don't accept the validity of something called the Vedas, which are a series of holy texts that I think are foundational to what a lot of people describe as Hinduism or a lot of the other you know, major dharmas. And so I realized that we're different, one. Two, I started to realize that there is space for my queerness. And I actually started to realize that the divine is queer. The teachers from my tradition would talk about a divine that mixed both the masculine and the feminine. There would be special privileges in the past for queer folk in South Asia, whole communities that worshipped a divine queer you know, being, that something that blended the masculine and the feminine and became something entirely new, something entirely other. Mm. The third energy. That revolutionized everything. It changed how I saw myself. If in the past, and even now in parts of South Asia, queer folk, many of which who are transgender, many of which who are, you know, like, like myself, who are masculine or attracted to the same sex, they had a past. There were names, terminologies, marriage even. I didn't know that it was possible to get married within my own tradition to another man. I never knew that. Mm-hmm. So when I thought of that deep conviction my, 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 you know, my, my grandmother had, when I thought about the real need for support that my mom was craving during this time, I found a lot of that in my tradition. And during my time at Georgetown, which is wild to think that this Jesuit university, built by the same people that persecuted my ancestors less than 500 years ago, the same architects of the Goan Inquisition, now have provided me a space where my queerness has been deepened by my religion. In fact, I am actually at 5 p.m. today, which you should definitely come to if you'd like. We're holding our second session of Dharmic Life's Queer Dharma, the first ever university-sanctioned programming that provides a critical space for people to reflect about their spirituality and their queerness, because they're not separate. That's what I learned, I think. When I was initiated in 2019 and when I came back, I was horrified by how much I shunned. And so I felt kind of almost, um, this is, I put my own pressure on myself to, to like learn more, to do more, to practice more. And as I did, I, I found like support for my mental health, for my emotional health. I found ways of connecting to, you know, my ancestors. I found ways of, 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 of you know, honoring the people before me. I, you know, we're not just part of, of, of you know, we're not, they're not just my ancestors, you know. You know, your mother, your, you know, your mother was an egg in your grandmother. It was an egg. In her grandmother. Mm -hmm. I am physically tied to a history, to a lineage. And so accessing that in many ways freed me. But then realizing that that lineage is not this heteropatriarchal bullshit that the British taught my mother. Or it's not, you know, some erroneous label that... I was forced to kind of fit into in Texas. It came, it came also with me coinciding, I think, as I came, my grandmother passed away the summer before my senior year. And so what I also kind of started to realize was that as a queer individual, I am, you know, I will be unfortunately racialized. I always knew that, but I think it hit even harder. The white queer folk do not have this history. They do not have the same understanding of, you know, what that positionality is. In South Asia, those queer communities were eradicated by colonization. Norms were destroyed. Victorian ones, the same in hyper-intense Anglo-Protestant norms 
of what morality, of what sex, of what gender, of what taboos are, were imposed wholesale across a whole subcontinent on Hindus, Muslims, Lingayats, Buddhists, everyone alike. That history is not something that I have in common with another Irish twink. I never will. Just a fact and parcel, but that history is also a source of inspiration too. It's it's a way of looking at a dynamic history of queerness. I'm going to talk a lot about history, but it is a way for me to really ground myself in something that I believe is physical. I was not, I'm not the, I think growing up I thought I was the only gay Indian person, which is stupid. And it's it's sad. I it think. is sad. You know, it's tragic that to grow up in those circumstances and feel alone. I hope you don't, I know you don't, obviously. You're here in front of me and you seem... I am proud. More than full, yeah. yeah. I am proud to, you know, inhabit all these identities at once because each and every one of them are part of who I am and they're inseparable. Growing up, that was not the case. Mm-hmm. And it was a hard, hard journey. I did not feel like I belonged. You know, I, I to be queer, I had to become white. To be South Asian, I had to become straight. To be Hindu, I, I had to be something else. But in realizing that my faith, my identity, who I am, all are in dialogue with each other, I could understand, you know, where a lot of people are coming from that, you know, like, you know, starting to, like, you know, physically, you know, giving readings out in an Episcopal church. I'm talking to people who believe that, you know, queerness and God are separate, coming from a tradition that believes God is queer. It's a hard thing to reconcile, but it doesn't need reconciliation. I think learning to be in dialogue and conversation with each other is sufficient enough. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like, I think, how I, I, I really reconciled with, with my identity. But I think more on, like, I guess, like, being a queer person, it definitely is, is difficult. American beauty standards are, are not kind to people with non-Eurocentric, you know, beauty features or people who don't fit a very specific body type. The gay community is no exception. I think it is incredibly, incredibly toxic at times. And from grinder to going out to a date, especially, you know, with white people, like there's always something that comes up. You know, you always feel something off. There's a inability at times to understand one another from where we're coming from. Fundamentally, I grew up in a household where there was three or four languages spoken daily. Some of the people I've gone on date with don't, I think I can't even speak English correctly. <laughs> and so like, 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 I think coming to terms with that really happened like here at Georgetown. Like mm-hmm. I, I think I, I realized that like, well, shit, I have to kind of navigate that difference in a way that's healthy and productive. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I guess I didn't realize that growing up, a lot of the, the, the trauma I had had from, from feeling that my queerness is separate would inform a lot of the activism, a lot of the stuff I'm doing around campus today. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about that, obviously. You came on my radar through the Hoya, oh, talking yeah. about the South Asian Society, South Asian Certificate. I'd love to hear more about your work in both organizations, but we can start with society and then trickle down to certificate. So they're actually connected. Yeah. When I was vice president, so last year, because I studied South Asia, I really wanted to study South Asia going into school. I entered Georgetown in the college as a linguistics major. I wanted to study the history of Proto-Indo-European. <laughs> I, I studied Latin in middle school and I studied some Greek in middle school and elementary school. And I was obsessed with Sanskrit in high school. And I came to find out that all three languages actually have a common ancestor, mm-hmm. spoken by single people 8,000 years ago. And so in my freshman year, I really studied that, but I realized it wasn't enough. And I, I wanted to study all of South Asia's you know, past and present so that I could actively help make a better future. I, don't, I think 
one of the things that I hate that we get all this knowledge at school and we do nothing with it. it, it it's a kind of, and it horrifies me. And so I decided to transfer the SFS. And when I did, I realized in order to have literally, you know, like in order to do my major, I needed a program. There was no South Asian studies. There was not a single South Asian language offered in fall of 2020. This is in the pandemic, so I had no other option except to take Persian. Mm. And lo and behold, I found out that Persian was the administrative language for almost a thousand years in South Asian Islamic states. It was a language of art, history, culture, poetry. I had no idea. First, like that decision, which I thought was unfortunate, changed my life. Mm -hmm. I realized that that language from a culture that I thought was distant from my own was part and parcel of a history that defined my mom's own experience. The word for right, the word for trust in my in Canada is hakka. It comes from the Arabic word haq, truth. Mm. One of the names for Allah is al-haq, the truth. And in Persian, haq, haq means you know, everything from administrator to, to truth to law. I had no idea. I Persian was a, kind of my gateway in, and so when I realized there was no way for me to articulate that gateway, to articulate this this feeling I have of, of intense connection with something that was taught to me as different, this intense connection which would fly in the face of those lines drawn by white men hundreds of years ago, I realized that we had to have a program here. We're owed one. Mm -hmm. The Jesuits came to South Asia with their ideas, with their borders, with their, you know, with, with their violence as much as with their intentions to convert. We are owed space at Georgetown to learn about our culture, to articulate it. Every other, there is multiple you know, courses on Chinese literature, but not a single one on any South Asian literature until these past couple semesters. And so when I was in the position of vice president, one of the things I wanted to do, not just for myself, but for all of us that are owed that space by the fact and agency of history, I decided to work for it. I started a petition with Suhani Garg and Hasni Shamasundar. When Hasni graduated, uh, it entered a new phase, and Shivani Tewari, uh, now my current vice president, Suhani, Shivani, and I wrote this petition basically outlining that South Asia, by virtue of its intense diversity, its global narrative, you know, it, there are more Muslims in South Asia than India. And, and, you know, India is, like, I think, the third most Muslim country on earth. Well, you know, these traditions, which are often taught, like especially in political, modern, contemporary narratives, as separate from our national identities, are part of a dynamic tapestry that history has woven. And we have no space at, quote unquote, the best international relations school in this hemisphere to study that. It's insulting. We are, you know, it was Georgetown graduates from the School of Foreign Service that you know, in 1971, worked with Pakistani officials and intelligence officers for Operation Searchlight, which was where three million Bengalis were killed. The graduates from this school have the capacity and have had the capacity to change the world. This school owes its students, you know, the capacity and resources to make them change makers. Otherwise, we'll just create more and more people that end up harming more and more people. And the school owes South Asians those resources. And so that anger was manifested in this petition that, you know, it was a reaction to, to, you know, the lack of resources, but the lack of just acknowledgement. You know, South Asians have been excluded from a lot of Asian American spaces on campus too. Mm -hmm. 
were seen as you know not worthy of that space you know when we check when we tech you know check off that like that census box of asian it's an ill-fitting one it doesn't make sense south asia is unique and south asian americans are asian americans they always have been so on top of like we put out a statement uh, months before that this is also all on our instagram too right after the petition kind of went out because we wanted to make sure that the administration knew that south asians want to study south asia that anyone should be able to study South Asia and that we should have the resources for it. We worked intensely with Dr. Christine Fair to get a Hindi program. She's actually not even classically, like she's not trained in Hindi education. She mm -hmm. studied Hindi because she is a South Asianist. She actually focuses on South Asian security and so she's been taking time out of her schedule and day to teach Hindi, Urdu, to offer Punjabi proficiency. We wanted to make sure that our students were able to take their languages and their courses. This is also on the heels of the fact that we learned that a lot of South Asian students were not allowed to take proficiency in their mother languages. One student who's in the School of Health was told that her mother tongue, Bengali, which is spoken by I think around 200 million people, is a classical language and not a modern one, despite the same School of Health running a program in Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, where the official language is what Bengali. This school has made and will continue to make errors and create individuals, bureaucrats, change makers, entrepreneurs, doctors that will ignore South Asians. We cannot teach a global curriculum if we leave out a seventh of humanity. And so that petition was not just a call for more, but it was holding the school and its history accountable for everything that they've done. As vice president of the South Asian Society, I was elected to represent all South Asians. So that led me down to fighting for not just Hindi, but Urdu language. You know, the, the Persian-Arabic uh, Arab, Persian standardization of Hindustani language. It was something that I've always wanted and Georgetown never had. And so it was, you know, my sincerest pleasure to, you know, help you know, realize that program for this fall, which I'm actually in the class. So I, I mean, as much as this was advocacy for my community, it was advocacy for myself as a South Asian, period. It was asking for, you know, a certificate, a place, a, a standard, you know, location, a space that could support me and all of the identities I wanted to, you know, inhabit, all the things I want to study. In reality, it was what was owed to us. By virtue of South Asian students being here, we are owed a right by this university's history of violence, of, of you know, of horrible violence. It is owed to us that space to authentically study and genuinely live out you know, our identities. Wow. Just to wrap up, this conversation has been very informative and I'm more than grateful. Thank you for your time, but I'm curious as to what do you want to leave people with as we wind down? As we wind down, I, I want to leave people with two things. Our past is our present and is also our future. We are not, we are not, we cannot exist without our history. And for peoples whose history has been taken from them, they are owed the right in the present to study that history, to recreate themselves as if, to, in order to ensure that they have a better future. If we are unable to understand the, both the victories and the failures of the past, like that one quote from the, some dead old white man, well, we're bound to repeat them. And so for me, I think I want to leave people with, with at least like, like a, a, a prayer. Like I, I, I hope and I pray that we're able to authentically engage our histories because in them are lessons of, of, of inspiration, of perseverance, 
are there are lessons of global stories that connect us past, present, and future. History breaks down the dimensions of, of, of time and allows us to enter spaces that we've never thought we belonged in. I had no idea that, you know, there is a, there's been a South Asian diaspora in this hemisphere for hundreds of years. My parents were not the first wave of immigrants here, and by no means will they be the last. So understanding where we come from is equally as important as understanding where we are now. And then lastly, I, I think living authentically in our, in our identities is also living authentically in the solidarity that we hope to build. I think that we cannot learn about each other in siloed and isolated stories because we, as many different diasporas, have interacted with each other for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Hell, some of our own groups started off as diasporas and will continue to be diasporas. And so that lesson of, of living with each other, learning from each other, pluralism. There's a beautiful Urdu word called covivency or tehzib. It also means formality. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what my, I think my major is called. Uh, and at least I'm calling it that because I can make my own. It is the capacity for us not just to live with each other, but to build each other up. Community building isn't just, you know, dialoguing people, having people just talk with each other. It's about people meaningfully believing in each other. So building solidarity means actively listening. It means sitting with that history and working to be better, always. I think the lessons I've taken growing up as a queer South Asian American, coming to the school, being a motivated you know, student of South Asia, is that we cannot think of ourselves as just Indian, Pakistani, you know, Salvadorian. We are people from global histories. Let's tack on those identities. Let's be specific. I think we have to learn to live and love the wholeness of our, of our composite selves. Because if you think about it, we are our own communities too. Like the identities that we inhabit are in dialogue with each other. And so when we're looking for the inspiration support we need, it's, I think it is wise to find it in each other's communities, to find it in ourselves. And I hope that, you know, as you listen to this conversation, that all of this information, because I, I, I think that's one thing I, I genuinely love. I love history because it is a lot of information. But it's information with a purpose. I hope that it, it, it empowers us to do better and to be better. Thank you so much. No, thank you. And I genuinely, I really appreciated this. No, of course. I mean, what, what can you say after a conversation like that? The only thing in my mind to say is to reaffirm some of the highlights. Without knowing our pasts as individuals, as a people, and as a community, how are we supposed to move forward in this life to build upon a foundation that is authentic to ourselves, true to our nature, without fear of reprisal from our countrymen, or the countrymen of this adopted home we have all found ourselves in, through birth or migration, through the actions and movements of our mothers and grandmothers. Our ancestors reverberate around us. And the quote that keeps ringing in my ears is this, our past is our present and is also our future. We are all part of a global community, interconnected by histories filled to the brim with horror and majesty. In light of that, I want to be a part of a community that builds the world of tomorrow. Thank you for listening. This has been Minority Report with Salomon Flamenco. All links to socials are in the description. If you want to continue the conversation, 
email us at minorityreport.beat at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time.